Hello, podcast listeners. This is our 12th and final episode of the It's Not All About Death podcast. We hope you found this podcast to be informative and useful to you as you learn more about palliative care and maybe even a little bit entertaining. Who would have guessed it? In this episode, Dr. Lyle Galloway sits down with one of our podcast hosts, Dr. Allison Murray, to talk about psychedelic-assisted therapy and end-of-life care. Dr. Lyle Galloway is a palliative care physician in Calgary, and he has been working in this field since 2001. He completed his certificate in psychedelic-assisted therapies and research from the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He sits down and talks about the use of psychedelic-assisted therapy and palliative care in those who have a life-limiting illness, common misconceptions, and the rationale behind psychedelic-assisted therapy. This is definitely a very interesting episode and one you won't want to miss. With another episode of our podcast. And this episode is an interview with Dr. Lyle Galloway. There's a lot of people that, yeah, I'm not sure why I'm saying us because it's just me today. And I'm going to be talking to Lyle about psychedelics. Uh, Lyle is a palliative care physician who works in Calgary with us. He has probably the most experience of anyone in our group with psychedelics. And so we're going to learn a little bit about them today. Why are you doing this? And what were you seeing was a need that wasn't being answered by all the palliative care that the rest of us are doing? Like it wasn't planned to that extent. I became interested in psychedelics probably 25 years ago. And then it kind of fell off the radar for a bit. And then I heard Charles Grobe, G-R-O-B, speak at the Montreal conference in, I guess it would have been 2018, about the study that they'd done for psychedelics in end-of-life distress. And I remembered that this was a class of medicine that I really been impressed by in my personal life decades ago and was intrigued to know that it was making waves in the official medical literature. Have you talked about existential distress in the podcast here? No, we haven't. Yeah. So uh, as you know, as a palliative care physician, it's, it's something we don't deal with well. Um, it's not like depression or anxiety or something where there are evidence-based pharmacotherapies that can help with it. Can but you as as know, maybe for a start define existential distress? It probably so existential distress I think we would agree centers around questions of big picture meaning and purpose and what it means to be alive and to be mortal 
and to be human, what it means to exist and all of the problems that that may or may not pose. And, and this comes to the forefront when someone ends up with a life-ending diagnosis or a life-limiting diagnosis in many cases because they feel like there's this weight hanging over their heads, maybe, I don't know, a sort of Democles sort of thing or, or whatever, where um, they realize time is limited and that whatever they had in mind for 20 years down the road is not going to come to pass. And there's a lot of grief associated with that. And uh, just the acknowledgement that I may not be around in five years is a big thing that most of us in our adult lives don't contemplate on a day-to-day -day basis or ever in, in some cases. And then you get a unresectable cholangiocarcinoma and all of a sudden you're grappling with this idea that you are not going to be around to see your grandchildren born or, or whatever. Um, or that you're not going to see your children grow up or that you're not going to see your 60th birthday, or whatever whatever it is. But I think those are issues that fall into the existential domain that are not necessarily related to depression. It's not a mood disorder, and it's not an anxiety disorder. Um, this existential distress can affect people who are totally functional from a cognitive, mental, emotional standpoint, but now are being confronted with mortality. And I, I think that's where the rubber hits the road with palliative care and psychedelics. So... Does that make sense? I think it, it makes sense. I'm trying to um, think of this in a very practical way. Um, and think of it, you know, not so much as what I've read about existential distress as what I see um, every day when I'm talking to people who are looking at the end of their lives. And I think what I see, or what I'm hearing you say, is, is that they're, they're having trouble coming to terms with death itself. So the extinction of the self, basically. Mm -hmm. More than, say, you know, connection or what was the meaning of my life or that kind of thing. It's more just this idea that they will not exist. Would you mm -hmm. say that's true? Yeah, maybe. And it, it's not like a one-size-fits-all diagnosis. Mm. I think, yeah, different people may be bothered by different aspects of a life-limiting diagnosis. And I, I don't know, I, I think everybody in the medical literature has trouble defining what is existential distress mm -hmm. as well. But I think we, we know it when we see it mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, it, it's not mental illness. Um, it's grappling with one of the 
fundamental facts of being human. We're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And in the case of a, an incurable cancer, that usually means you're going to die way sooner than you thought you might. Not that anybody really plans on it, but everybody thinks this is going to happen when I'm 85 years old. Yeah, and I think the other thing that surprised me about existential distress was that it can occur um, to for anyone at any age. So I've looked after patients who are in their late 80s and are mad as hell that they're going to die <laughs> and um, are really having trouble accepting it and might be very good candidates for the treatments we're about to talk about. Who knows? And so... Um, what did you do to get training in this or once you realized it was 2018 you said that this was something you wanted to pursue what how did you get the training in case any of our listeners would be interested in training like this so I looked around a bit and I got training through CIIS the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco um, and they have uh, a program in psychedelic assisted therapy and research that's probably the oldest and most established program in training in this area and their like the pedigree of their faculty is um, it's, it's like nowhere else probably um, in that it includes the people who made waves in this research decades ago. Um, so you have uh, all the people who were publishing in the 2010s, um, uh, Griffiths and Grope and so on, as well as Stan Groff. Um, so, so it was one way to become familiar with this world and meet the people involved who started exploring this and are passionate about it. Um, so it's a one-year program, essentially consisting of long weekends a month, or sorry, a, a weekend per month um, over the course of a year with like a one-week uh, intensive chunk in the middle, but um, so, so that's how I pursued official training in this area, and I've been certified that way. One of our other physicians in Calgary has recently um, completed that program as well. And was the training more like how to be a therapist, or was it more about the evidence behind these psychedelic medications? Both. Okay. Yeah, so it, it spoke to uh, both the medical evidence and, and part of it was very much from a therapist's point of view or from an experiential point of view um, with people who had significant experience with this medicine. Now, I don't know, I don't know, is it okay to say on this podcast that... I recognize that doing training in a classroom or whatever was not sufficient 
and and I also connected with an underground therapist who was doing work with us to be able to say, okay, what what does real life work in psychedelic therapy look like? Yeah, I would say not only that, but my uh, sense having talked to people who do psychedelic therapy is it's pretty much the only medicine I've ever heard of where the ther- it almost seems like the therapist has to have done it themselves in order to be effective. Yeah, I, I think that would be the consensus opinion um, for people who are working in the field. Yeah, yeah which is pretty interesting. It, it is, like there's nothing else in medicine. You, you don't say yeah. you have hypertension and so I'm gonna... we're going to put you onto this medicine, but... In, I'll try in, in it order first. To be qualified for that, I, I need to have experience with this medicine. Exactly, yeah. totally. Um, <clears throat> so let's move to um, the patients. When when you're seeing patients in your practice, who who is it for? And also, are there patients where you think that that would be absolutely the worst thing for this patient to try? So listeners of this podcast probably need to recognize up front that this is a really new and emerging field of therapy. And, and we don't have black and white guidelines around this. Um, what we do know is that people who have a history of a psychotic disorder and in most cases, people would say a family history of psychotic disorder um, should not be using psychedelic medicine. Um, people with significant personality disorders, um, particularly those that like um, Particularly those that don't involve solid boundaries around ego structure and, and so on. Um, would you so so a, a borderline personality disorder, oh, okay. for instance, okay. would usually be considered a contraindication to using psychedelics? These medicines can shake the walls of your existing ego structure. And if those walls are already only tenuously holding up, then that may not be a step forward. On the other hand, I think what seems to be emerging is that um, people who have conditions that are characterized by a degree of obsessiveness or stuckness are usually good candidates for this um, because these medicines can break out of normal habits and modes of thinking Hmm. that are often pathological and this would apply to depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, addiction, uh, etc. You can probably continue the list, but where people get stuck in patterns and loops of thinking that are counterproductive, 
psychedelics seem to be able to help reset things and make new connections. And so is that a criteria when you're talking to a patient? If they sound like they're just going around and around in a circle in terms of dealing with a certain problem or, again, just thinking about their own death, would that be the person you would think about offering it to? Maybe. Um, I, I'd have to say it's more... It, like, to date, this isn't something that we're putting on the table and saying, this is something you really should think about. Usually it's people coming to us and asking. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I'm a bit cautious about saying, you know, I, I'm certainly not an evangelist for this form of, of therapy, and it's certainly not a panacea for everything out there. Um, that said, I, I think the patients who are best suited for it, in my experience, are people who are stuck to some degree, which is kind of an intuitive feel that we get. Um, people who are willing to do self-work and have a degree of insight uh, into their own uh, their own processes and psychological tendencies. And what's your answer? Often when I've talked to patients um, or even friends when we've talked about, you know, is this something you'd want to do? I've heard someone say something like, well, I like to be in control, so I definitely wouldn't want uh, this experience. What would your answer to a patient telling you that they like control? Hmm. It would depend what they're struggling with. Like, I, I think need for control is something that we encounter really frequently in palliative care, right? Mm -hmm. Because and often these illnesses take away everything from yeah. you in terms of and things you can control. need for control in many cases drives a request for aid, for instance. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. For patients who have a real need for control, I don't see it as a contraindication. I think those may be the patients that might be most likely to benefit. Uh, at the same time, um, those are the patients that may have a more challenging time with medicine like this that tends to uh, disrupt that sense of being able to control everything, which may underlie a lot of the existential distress. Yeah, and I think that leads to another um, reservation when I talk to people about these medicines. Um, people are often concerned about a bad trip or I suppose even just freaking out when they realize they're not in control and they've just taken a drug that's going to be with them for a long time. What do you say to people when they have those concerns? The terminology that gets used in psychedelic circles is not around, it's not a bad trip. Generally people will talk about this as a challenging experience. So it's not like there's this flip switch that flips and, and all of a sudden you're in a bad trip. 
Um, it's not like a therapeutic trip is always a blissful, joyous kind of thing. Uh, in fact, when they look at patient experience, uh, often the people who have challenging experiences, in retrospect, say, that was super valuable. And uh, I learned things from that that I never could have if, if this was just a walk in the park. Um, psychedelics definitely can bring up unconscious material that people often have not processed previously. And, and that can be difficult uh, if you're skating on the surface of your ego and, and don't want to go any deeper than that, then having material come up that, uh, that extends beyond the ego or that threatens your own um, sense of how things are can feel threatening. Um, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and it can be a therapeutic thing, um, but it can be challenging in the moment. So I, I think what's really important, so, so bad trips, colloquially, are, are going to happen way more where people are not prepared and where the setting is not conducive to therapeutic work. Um, if you've got properly informed and trained people there, then even challenging experiences can be held within that space and can become very therapeutic or productive, um, even though they might not be pleasant in the moment. So, so yeah, uh, you know, a, a trip with psilocybin, for instance, will very often involve tears or uh, crying or loud vocalizations and uh, and, and what uh, what looks like extreme distress um, at the same time if held within the right space and people know okay it's okay to express this and it's coming up and it's it's all right and we're going to work with this then it can actually be really productive. And I, I think what maybe sometimes doesn't get enough emphasis is that the post-psychedelic work, uh, what gets called integration, is where a lot of the transformative work can really happen. Yeah, and I think that might be useful to describe a little in a little bit more detail what set and setting mean for these drugs and um, what is the kind of uh, protocol might be too firm a word but but what's the general um, um, idea of what someone goes through if they were to to have a psychedelic session with you set and setting um, again Listeners can Google this and get a way better description, but set is what the person is bringing to the session. Their expectations, their internal psychological makeup, 
um, their beliefs about what is what is happening. Um, it, it, it's all of the internal subjective stuff. Setting is what's outside. Um, so that's your environment. It's who you're with. It's um, what sort of preparation has been done. Um, it's it's the container in which the experience can happen. And and both are really important. And so so taking diagrams of dried mushrooms at a festival. Um, who knows what sort of set you're bringing to that. And as far as the setting, it, it can be really variable, and, and that's a totally uncontrolled environment. It can be blissful, and some people have spiritually transformative experiences. And it can also be just a hellish experience. Um, and, and, and I think that's why any studies that have been done or are being done make such efforts to control what's what's happening going into this. Are people prepared for it? Are, are there properly trained guides in the mix? Um, what happens afterwards? Um, how, how does this whole thing get processed? How does it get experienced in the moment? It, it's so different from any other medicine that we use in, in medicine. So, in practical terms, people meet with you, say, once or twice before the actual journey? Uh, depends on the situation. Yeah, I, I would say, I, ideally, I've got an ongoing relationship with the patient, at least twice. In most cases where we've been doing psilocybin um, through the exemption route in Canada, um, We'll have people connected with a psychiatrist with the group who will spend, uh, I don't know, it's a handful of hours pre-session with the patient and likewise a handful afterwards. So probably, you know, where you look at therapeutic studies or, or what would get put into textbooks, uh, we're probably looking at at least three two-hour sessions before the medicine and probably the same afterwards. And so those three two-hour sessions are the set, basically, helping that person set expectations and... Uh, yeah, it's helping establish that. And then I think you know, the relationship aspect of things is big as well. So making sure that you've got a trusting relationship, the rapport. With, and with the patient should in. you should that person that you've met with be the actual sitters, the person yes. who's sitting with you? Uh, yes, I, I would say that would be best. And then, can you tell us a bit about the the actual kind of sitting experience, or what the patient experiences, who's with them when they actually do their psychedelic journey? Hmm. So with. Um, again, I don't have decades of experience with this, so, so my experience is in a fairly carefully curated semi-medical session or setting. Um, I've been working with a group in Calgary who's helping patients advocate for access to psilocybin, um, which includes a number of people who are familiar with this medicine and this work. So generally, we will have two people present um, 
during a, a session. Patients will show up around noon, usually, and we'll chat to make sure everybody's feeling good and uh, have them familiar with the space, which they will have toured beforehand. Um, it's, it's also possible to do this in patients' homes, and in that case, you don't need them to be familiar with anything else. Um, but make sure everybody's comfortable, physical needs are, are dealt with. Um, I'm going to talk about psilocybin, and every molecule is, is a bit different here, so you have to think about that, but uh, psilocybin is what we're using most currently. Um, Magic mushrooms. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, although the process has changed in Canada. So people are not going to be taking mushrooms anymore. Uh, they're now going to be taking a tablet containing psilocybin. Oh, okay. A, Synthetic. A measured amount, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, they'll take the medicine. Um, often we'll talk of it beforehand. I'll sometimes ask people to bring in things that might be of personal importance to them. So, like photo albums, I had one guy who brought in like this stack, he told his wife, oh, my doctor told me I should, should bring in some photos or whatever, and she like sent him there with it, like eight um, family volumes, family, family volumes, and, and so uh, we kind of reviewed that, and so as the medicine's coming on, that, that's often a good way to ground people, though, in, in their lives, and in you know, and it depends on the patient, obviously. Um, but, you know, this was somebody who was really struggling with the idea of separating from his wife and his two young daughters. And so having eight deep photo albums of pictures. Um, it, it was a, a cool way to start, where, where he could kind of flip through these and, and tell us about mm. what was going on. Anyway, it takes, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes for the the medicine to take effect. Then usually we'll have people lie back on a couch in one of the rooms there um, with eye shades on if they're comfortable with that. And it's usually a good thing for going internally. Uh, music is usually part of the mix. Uh, sometimes you can do that with headphones or you can do it with ambient music that's, that's playing in the room. Um, we can talk more about that if, if needed, but, um, and, and then it, it's a question of holding space for the patient. It's not, it's not an active therapeutic process as far as the therapist is concerned in the moment, although it, it, it's not passive either, um, but it's not like you're telling people, okay, go, go into this thought or pursue that, that memory or, or whatever. It's, trusting their internal processes to come up with what needs to come up and saying, okay, let's, let's trust the internal healer here to, to bring whatever needs bringing up to the forefront and then immerse in that. So um, we'll do a certain amount of coaching beforehand to say, um, no, it's all essentially about trusting and being open and letting go. And so if something challenging comes up, go into it. You know, if you see a door, go through the door. 
if you see a staircase, follow that staircase. And is that what the sitters then really are for, is to support that person in mm, going through the door, going up the staircase? Um, yeah, it, it, it's so that they know someone is with them and holding that space for them to do their own internal journey. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if, if somebody has to pee, then we'll help them get to the bathroom. If they need a drink of water, we'll get that for them. Mm -hmm. or, you know, if somebody's nauseated, we'll deal with that. But we're not trying to guide this journey. We're, mm. we're telling people... Um, so almost more like support people rather than guides. Yes. And then what happens in the this post... When does that occur and, and what exactly happens there after the journey? Mm, it probably starts right afterwards. So where we're talking about psilocybin, we're looking at usually five or six hours. Um, the experience is peaking one, two hours or so. By three hours, usually people are starting to come down and back into their more ordinary state of consciousness. And, and that can be a really useful space as well, um, where people are more able to communicate and perhaps reflect a bit, although that's not really the right time to try and do intensive processing of what's going on. It, that's, again, it's more time to uh, encourage people to feel what's, what's happening within themselves. And, and explore that. Often towards the end of sessions, uh, you know, when, when, when people are approaching the end of, of their psilocybin journey, we'll give their family member a call and say, hey, you know, we're, we're coming out, uh, you know, come on back, they're gonna need a ride in an hour or whatever. And people will come and, uh, and that can sometimes be really useful time. You know, if someone's spouse comes and joins them uh, in that space after they've been through this experience, and then we'll often say, okay, we're just going to leave you guys if it feels right. And, and that can be a really valuable time for people to connect. It, uh, in, in many cases, seems to remove filters and allows communication on a level that isn't usually possible in their habitual state of of existing. Um, generally, yeah, we'll, we'll touch base with people the next day. We'll make sure that people have a phone number before they leave the clinic if something happens at midnight and they're saying, okay, this is coming back and it's really bothering me. But we'll touch base the next day and then usually we'll plan on follow-up sessions a few times over the next few weeks to review what's, what's gone on um, psychedelics disrupt and disorganize the usual ways that our minds, egos operate. And the, the process of putting things back together and saying uh, what, what insights came from this experience and how can you make those real in your life is where the real work happens. It's not like you have a mushroom trip and your life magically changes. 
um, things in your real life need to change for for this to to happen, and and sometimes that change is, is internal. You know, it, I think the it, I, I've been talking about psilocybin, but if you were to try and make a generalization about psychedelics in general, they all induce non-ordinary states of consciousness. And usually we're stuck in what we think of as normal consciousness, ordinary consciousness, and we think that there's nothing nothing else. This, this is how the world is. And regardless of the psychedelic, I think, removing us from that state and then returning it to it within a period of hours affords insight that most people don't have access to. You might be able to get it by, you know, periods of prolonged meditation or, you know, there are sacred dance traditions, for instance, or uh, it, it, uh, any number of things that can induce non-ordinary states of consciousness. But I don't think there's anything quite so reliable um, to bring you out of your normal state of consciousness and then return you back to it with the knowledge of what's happened. And often, particularly where we're talking about high-dose psilocybin, for instance, that involves a loosening or total disruption of normal ego boundaries. Um, people may lose any sense of who they are or what they are or the knowledge that they have arms and legs and a body or, or whatever. And then they return to that. And, and the process of returning to your normal self is, is really fascinating. Um, you start to see things taking place again, and you, you remember, oh, you, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Lyle Galloway. <laughs> That's funny, because you know? uh, I was totally aware and conscious mm. when I did not know that I was Lyle Galloway. Um, and I think there's, that may be, one of the central parts of the experience that helps relieve end-of-life anxiety is the knowledge that when this little flesh-encapsulated self that I think is me dies, there's way more going on. And um, there's something about the mystical experience, and anybody listening can look up MEQ, Mystical Experience Questionnaire, and, and, and see the list of questions. But you know, one of those is, is a sense of unity with everything and realization that my small self is, is only a piece of things. And even if I die, then all these other things that are really important to me are going to continue on. And that's okay. Um, whereas that may have previously been framed as this tragic ending of everything that was ever important to me. And I'm, I'm really extrapolating here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But 
that's that's my own speculation about one of the things that may be happening. Mm-hmm. And is that something that you might be talking to people about in their like, is, is that the kind of theme that you might hear from people when the experience is over and yes. you're talking to them the next day? Yes. That's so that's a pretty common experience. theme. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people will often say, you know, that everything disappeared and there was nothing but love or all I was aware of was the love connections with everybody who's important with me. And then you can say... Yeah, you know, and, and you really weren't there at, at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And even if your physical body weren't there, all of that continues to exist. And that love for you will exist well after your body or your mind ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, talking about it like this is, is so intellectual. It's talking about concepts, mm-hmm. but people feel it. They feel it deeply um, in a way that, um, I, I don't know, could, could only generally be accessed by decades of meditation or spiritual practice or, or whatever. And with proper integration, I think it can really become real. And my recollection of some of the Johns Hopkins studies was that um, people used words like ineffable. Um, you know, they described it as one of the most significant experiences of their life. So <clears throat> I think <laughs> yeah. similar to yeah. what, what you're trying to describe. Ineffable right? is inherently ironic, isn't it? It's, it means you can't find words to describe Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You're going to say ineffable about it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah. But you're, that's you're exactly right. what you're this, getting at, right? This, yeah. And, and yes, you know, people said that this was, you know, the majority of people, I believe, said this was one of the top five most significant experiences in my life up there with the birth of a child or death of a parent or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is is fascinating. Yeah, um, and I think we'll we'll make sure that there's some links to some of these research studies. Maybe you can, because there's so many now, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's hard to recommend uh, what to read about this. Yeah, again, if if you, I, I don't know, I've seen some charts about, you know, if you. Google how many scientific papers had this keyword in them. But if you put psychedelic or psilocybin or something in there, you see like this this little blip in the 50s, 60s, early 70s sort of, and then it just dies. And and now it, it's just this exponential curve upwards over the last decade. And, and we're going to see a lot more of this, I think. Um, as far as where people should go, um, probably most of the people listening are, are probably familiar with this area to some extent. Um, but if you haven't read Michael Pollan's book, that really broke things open as far as popular culture. So How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N. That was from 
maybe 2018, I'm guessing. Um, MAPS, uh, M-A-P-S dot org, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been doing a lot of the groundbreaking research since 1985 when um, MDMA was made illegal in the States and it's poised to become uh, rescheduled, at least within the U.S., within the next year or two. Um, yeah, and I think I'd like to talk about that a little bit. You know, you've, you've dropped a number of uh, names of different drugs. So you've talked about psilocybin, which are magic mushrooms, um, MDMA. I know you've done some work with ketamine. Can you talk a little bit about like if you see someone, how do you decide what drug might be best for them and what's legal currently in Canada? Let's stick with Canada since that's where we are. <laughs> Let's also stick with legal since that is probably what constrains our practice where sure. the official podcast discussion is concerned. Got it. Um, ketamine and psilocybin. That's it? Yep. Um, it's psilocybin only by special access now. It used to be a Section 56 exemption. They've changed it now um, to probably a relatively more opened up um, access path. Um, and, and, and so that's psilocybin. So now you need to get it from a manufacturer in tablet form. Whereas when we were doing exemptions, uh, uh, synthesized psilocybin was not allowed. We had to use dried mushrooms. And, and there's more variability there, obviously. Mm -hmm. So now I think their announcement on uh, for the SAP Special Access Program, um, it included psilocybin, it included MDMA. There was at least one other, was it, M or was it LSD? I think it might have been. Um, ketamine has always been on our, our roster. Um, ketamine is a really different substance. Um, it could be classified as a psychedelic. It, it, yeah, it, it is a psychedelic, but it's, it's a very different psychedelic from the tryptamines, like psilocybin. Um, and MDMA likewise. It, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not actually correct to talk about these all as a class of drug, like you might talk about calcium channel blockers or something. Mm. Um, MDMA is so different from psilocybin, from LSD, from ketamine, that you really have to talk about them as individual molecules. I think what they have in common in general is the non-ordinary state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And do you think the research or experience has got to the point where practitioners actually, you know, are picking a certain drug for a certain patient, or is it more just this drug is legal and this is the easiest way for us to obtain for, this experience for now? For above-ground practitioners, we don't have a big menu. Okay. Um, yeah. We, yeah, we have ketamine. Um, or if you know how to go through the special access process, we're figuring out how psilocybin can be accessed that way. I think... 
and and in you're the saying that in world, yeah. it's it's different because they've got a much bigger menu yeah. of things and and use it very intelligently and there is a huge body of knowledge that I fear is going to get lost if this gets too medicalized. Yeah, which it appears to be, would you would you say? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I guess my, my last question, there's an Alan Watts quote that says, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Um, and I think a lot of people would say, well, that means take one trip, get your insight, and then go out there and live your life. Um, what do you think about the duration of effect of these drugs? And do people need a second journey or a third journey or a journey every three months? Or what? what's your opinion on that? Hmm. I, there's not a black and white answer on that, and certainly nothing that's literature-based. The um, one of the groups that published in 2016 with the landmark end-of-life studies was either NYU or Hopkins, published a follow-up five years later. And of the existing patients, the great majority, I'm, I'm going to just pull this number out of the air and say like 80% ex experience continued benefits for five years from a single or at most two journeys. Um, I think... Although a lot of them would have been dead, wouldn't they? They chose their patients carefully. Oh, okay. So, so these were not patients with two months left to live. Oh, these were patients okay. with life-ending diagnoses. But, but a fairly long prognosis. But really solid yeah. physical status. Oh, I see. Okay. And yeah, and yeah so it, it, it is a different group. It, and it's different from the patients that you and I are working with mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis who may have months to live. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we have to sort of assume that the same sort of psychological, emotional, spiritual processes apply um, when somebody's staring down death in three months as opposed to in eight years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it, I, I remember reviewing that paper and, and saying, okay, I'm really surprised that this was published as a palliative care patient and you've got this many patients who are still alive. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would agree that, you know, compulsively seeking non-ordinary state experience is, it is not where the healing happens. Um, generally, the, yeah, the, the insight is going to come with a single, maybe two, immersive experiences. Mm. Depends which drug we're talking about to some extent too. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are real internal journey kind of things mm. and some are much more relational kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I can certainly see situations with MDMA for instance and family members where repeated journeys a couple times a year or something might be super valuable. Mm. We, we don't have data on that but, but they are different medicines. Mm -hmm. um, You'd call them empathogens, would you not? MDMA? Uh, MDMA? Yeah, it, it would usually be called an empathogen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. 
so looking at it from a you know from a just purely non psychotherapeutic point of view where ketamine is concerned uh, it seems like fairly frequent repeated dosing up front is often needed to establish a consolidated response and then after that uh, we may be looking at every four to six weeks or something to, to repeat that but that's much of that literature is not looking at it as an experiential thing it's looking at it as this molecule that gets into your system and makes your suicidal ideation get better mm. um, there's not processing or therapy involved hmm. so that. yeah so the ketamine sounds like a pretty different intervention it, it can be it, it mm. can also be a totally immersive psychedelic experience uh, mm. it depends on dose set setting Mm -hmm. and how the therapy around it is arranged. Hmm. It, I'm sorry, this is not at all black and white. <laughs> no, but so I, I still have to figure out how to frame this because it, it's such an evolving field and I can't point to evidence saying, okay, if you've got somebody with three weeks left to live, here's the evidence saying that giving them a ketamine infusion is going to make them better and be able to relate better to their family and yeah. make their end-of-life anxiety go away and they'll have a better death. There's That literature does not exist. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's a bit amusing that medicine has now um, seemingly, you know, been pretty keen to, uh, to adopt these drugs and uh, take them over from the underground community because there's so much we don't know, and it sounds like even the things we do know are somewhat indescribable, and medicine likes to be, I think, a fairly black and white. Yes. Um, yeah. Science. We're probably a paradox, and we're <laughs> already we're out of black and white territory. That We work in shades of gray, as, as your podcast listeners have probably gleaned at this point. If they've what, 11, 12 podcasts? <laughs> I'm sure they have, everyone. Well, thank you, Lyle. I think that's a good place to uh, sum it up. So many shades of gray. All right. Um, we will have some links um, to some of the references, references uh, that were made. And again, so uh, much gratitude to Lyle for taking time out of his day to talk to us about this. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.com.